All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Zach Gates. I'm the director of Next Steps here at Trinity Green Trails. Uh, so if you're looking to get plugged in, uh, reconnected or connected here, maybe it's your first time, uh, maybe you're back after a little while, uh, come talk to me after the service. Um, that's kind of my role here, but it's just good to see so many folks in here. The last couple of services have been uh, full of people, which is, which is great. So welcome, and we're happy you're here. We're diving into the book of Genesis. We're in a series on that right now, and today we're focusing on Noah. Uh, but just to recap really quickly, uh, we have God at the beginning uh, creating humans and life and order out of the disorder and the chaos. Human beings are created, and they're called very good in comparison to everything else. It's been called just good, so we're better. And uh, we uh, move forward from there, and God enters into his kingly rule and rest on the seventh day. And then in Genesis 3, we, uh, we take our will into our own hands. We eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we're kind of saying to God in that sense that you've designed me for something, and I just don't think that that's the right design. We begin to choose for ourselves, and from there, evil begins to multiply throughout the world. We see that with Cain and Abel. Uh, but however, before we get there, we get this promise of somebody who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, we have uh, an offspring of Eve that's going to uh, end evil and bring us back into right relationship with God. And we see Cain born, and we're like, yes, he's going to be the one who does it, right? Unfortunately, no. He ends up killing his brother Abel, and then the spiral continues. Cain's descendants become more evil and more evil. It's exponential evil. It's multiplicative evil. It keeps growing and growing worse and worse. But there is still hope. Uh, Seth is born to Adam and Eve, and one of his descendants, uh, Noah, who we're talking about today, carries that hope on forward. So that's where we're at with the story. So before we dive into Noah, will you please pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity. All of us gathered here are a part of this tradition that's thousands and thousands of years old where we read stories like this that are thousands and thousands of years old and we're still learning from it and able to learn from it and hear from it and make new connections and it gives new hope in the middle of new circumstances. So Lord, I want to thank you for that. Um, and I want to thank you for everyone in here, Lord. I ask that you open everyone's hearts and minds to be receptive to what it is that you've communicated through me. Pray that I get out of my own way and let you speak through me, Lord. Thank you again for this opportunity to be together and to be in your word. In your name we pray, amen. So uh, Noah, I think, uh, pun very much intended here, we have a very watered down version of the story, right? Come on. My, uh, my fiance thought that was amazing, um, so whatever, we'll figure it out. But uh, we do have this image of, of Noah, right? We have this happy, we have rainbows, we have the animals, everyone's smiling, right? Um, I think we have gone a little far, and, and maybe for reasons, um, you know, we, we understand the story kind of in bare basics, right? Noah is this man who builds an ark because there's a flood coming, the animals come two by two, and the ark floats, it rains 40 days, 40 nights. Uh, it subsides, humans are back on the land, and the rainbow comes and everything is good, right? It's, it's like that, Noah's happy. Um, and yet it ignores completely the fact that this is a mass extinction event, right? Everyone is dying, everything is dying. The text says that uh, everything with the, the breath of life in their nostrils on the face of the earth needs to die. Um, this is a horrifying, terrifying 
post-apocalyptic, apocalyptic-type story that we, for whatever reason, it might be that we're not necessarily good at facing things like judgment in our culture, where we see the role that we may have to play in things. Judgment's great for other people, right? Because they're the bad ones. We don't have a lot to contribute here. Um, however, that's not the case. It's not what we learn from the story. And as good citizens of the kingdom and as Christians who follow and try to bear God's image as well as possible and follow Jesus, we need to accept this and really take an honest look at this story. I think a really good comparison that we have of this story uh, in our kind of modern culture is the movie Don't Look Up. Have any of y'all seen that one? Yeah? It's on Netflix. It came out a couple months ago. Uh, but it's about these two scientists, Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio, who uh, find out that and discover an asteroid that's headed straight towards Earth. It's going to hit soon, uh, and everyone's going to die, is their message. Um, and uh, it is a terrifying message, and people shy away from it. The public reception of their announcement is avoidance, denial. They think it's kind of cute that these scientists are doing cute scientist stuff. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's coming, right? And, and if you were to swap out a couple of different things and they're like, instead of the asteroid, you consider that to be God's judgment. You swap out maybe the scientists with prophets or biblical scholars or something like that. You're going to get the message that we get in the Bible. God's judgment is coming. It's coming for us. Uh, and we are going to be judged. Uh, and that's, that's what we see happening in the Noah story. And I think the way to get the most out of that story in the time uh, that we've got today is to look at it in three very basic sections, that humans are bad, God is good, and God is great. Humans are bad, God is good, and God is great. So everybody with me? Everyone following, tracking so far? Good. So humans are bad. It's pretty blatant. God, you know, leaves it out there for us to, to realize. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him so that the earth was filled with violence. It's corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. This is very far removed from what we were designed for in Eden. In Eden, we're designed for right relationship with God. We're supposed to have dominion over the animals in the earth and violence, bloodshed, death was not a part of the original intent of creation. And yet here we are multiplied further from where we are at in Genesis 3. We see that in Tubal-Cain. It's one of Cain's descendants. He says, uh, you know, for um, Cain's sake, I'm going to multiply this on the earth 77 times over, right? It's more than Cain, right? He's bringing more violence into the world. And that's where we find ourselves here with Noah. Things are worse and worse to the point where God says every part of humans' hearts is evil, Right? So humans are bad. This is what we're getting from the story. Human beings are bad, and God's solution for this is to send a flood. And this grieves him to his heart, right? Because he doesn't want to have to do this. Human beings are his image bearers. However, we understand that for God to do and be who he is, a good God, a God who is just and righteous, that this is a necessary thing, and it's hard to conceptualize that. This is some people's hang-ups with Christianity, I see a God who is willing to kill people and everything and let things die. Uh, why would I believe or trust in that God? And yet, my next uh, very simple segue is that God is good. Um, God is good. How is God good if this is what we're seeing happening in the story, if this is his solution to human beings being so bad? Right? The Lord regretted he made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. This pains God. Again, we're his image bearers, and this is what's necessary. 
However, if you consider something like a surgeon who sees a corruption in the flesh, and uh, in order to save the rest of the body or that member, it's necessary to cut that corruption away and out for the sake of the body and the host to survive, right? And that's kind of what we're seeing. So God is good in three ways. His limitation, uh, what we're talking about here, preservation and justice. He's limiting the spread of the corruption by intervening. This is a good thing. He's limiting that spread. Things are only going to get worse. I'm going to intervene now. I care enough now to prevent that spread from continuing and corrupting absolutely everything. And that's what God is up to. He's good in his limitation because it's only going to get worse. God's good in his preservation. This is a really interesting part of the story where we see God preserving uh, his righteous family Noah and his family, they walk with God. They're in right relationship with him and they are preserved in the ark. It says the Lord shut them in and they're shut in with creation. His animals, birds, creeping things are preserved and every type of food is preserved. So what we have here is a little mini Eden that's located in the ark. This is a really cool thing to observe, right? Everything from Genesis 1 is contained right here. The humans who have dominion over everything, the food, the plants, the vegetation. We have the animals, birds, and the creeping things of the earth. Everything from Genesis 1 right here in this little, uh, this little floating box. Uh, and other themes are carried over here, right? In Genesis 1, it says God's spirit is hovering over the waters and ordering out of the disorder and bringing life. That's where it all begins, and here we are with more chaotic waters and another little Eden that's preserved there. Genesis 1 through 3 is kind of being inverted in the story, and it's to make room for Eden 2.0. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But things are preserved. God cares enough to keep his goodness thriving and ongoing. God's good in his preservation. And God is good in his justice. This is important, especially right now as we're seeing things unfold in Eastern Europe. But we need God as a judge, and his justice is good, and it's necessary. I think that's why this might be a little bit of a watered-down story. Our culture bristles at this idea that we have a role to play, or that we have evil as a part of us. We're told that things are good, we have our truth, and we do all have unique experiences. However, we do need, and we see through the need for justice, that there is a God, an objective God, who teaches us and loves us, for who we are and instills in us goodness through his teaching and through his laws and his commands that justice administered through God is a good and necessary thing. This is a quote from Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Uh, Volf was a, um, he was in the Balkans. He's a Croatian um, theologian and philosopher who was in the middle of the civil war in the Balkans. And he wrote this in his book that the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves, which is what Cain's uh, descendants have done, they've continued to contribute violence throughout the world, they took it into their own hands, uh, is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians. It's making a harsh point that some of this has... this. Um, Non-image-bearing ideas have come into the church uh, in some ways that some Christians believe it is our responsibility to take justice and administer justice into our own hands. And we understand, I'll talk about that in a sec, how that's not the most full picture of justice. But soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. 
In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the mind. So one caveat to consider here, right? Suburban uh, home, it's more, uh, um, you know, it's meant to be an idea that we get from the idea of the suburbs, right? Kind of quiet, a little maybe secluded or protected, um, whatever might be a little sheltered or comfortable. That's what he's getting at here. He's not saying that everyone from the suburbs doesn't get this, but um, he's kind of making that point of the idea that if you haven't really experienced something like him, where you've experienced and been in the face in the middle of gross injustice, war, violence, things being taken from you unjustly, you being ripped from your homes or things being uh, enforced on you that are unnecessary or violating and you can't do really anything about it, like he was you know, kind of in the middle of in the Civil War in the Balkans, that it's difficult to understand this visceral reaction that we all have for vengeance and justice uh, as a response among ourselves, within ourselves. And it's difficult for Christians as image bearers, true Christian image bearers, to live a, a way of nonviolence, to trust that that's God's job and not mine. And this is why we need a judge, because we're only going to contribute more to the world if we're taking that violence and that justice and judgment into our own hands. This is God's job, is what he's saying, and it's difficult for us because our instinct, because like we learned, humans have these evil inclinations in their heart, is to enact that in the world uh, instead of letting God do his job. We need that judge or else we're going to only contribute to the evil and the corruption that exists in the world. So God is good. He's good in his limitation. He's good in his preservation, and he's good in his justice. He administers it rightly and fairly, and it's necessary. So all these things are good, right? We talk about how they're good, they're things that we need. However, what, what is God doing here that makes him great, right? What, what, how do we trust and how do we know that God is going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves if justice and judgment is out of our hands? In uh, chapter 9, verses 12 to 13, God says, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So just fast forward, right? The flood comes, Eden's preserved, uh, the waters subside, and uh, the little mini Eden is released into the world again. We have Eden 2.0, like I had mentioned. God gives the command to be fruitful and multiply, just like he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. All of the living things are free to roam on the land. Here we are again. It's a fresh start, right? This is good news. This is hopeful uh, this is God preventing that corruption and that spread of violence in the world and a new beginning is happening here. And this is how he marks it, by uh, making a covenant. First time covenant is mentioned between God and his people in the Bible. Uh, it's a heavy word, so it's important to know that. Uh, and that covenant uh, is that he's setting his bow in the cloud. So just to consider the idea of God being great, what does this mean? What does the rainbow signify there? Well, um, that word that's used there uh, in Hebrew is keshet. Uh, it means bow, like an archer's bow. Uh, and that is being uh, hung up in the clouds here, right? So the rainbow, split that word apart, rain. This is bow that appears in the sky after there is rain. Uh, the word, again, used is the one of a bow and arrow. And it's pointed up. It's aimed at God. God is at peace with human beings, but he's saying that moving forward, I'm not going to judge you in the same way that I have. Instead, I'm going to judge. I'm going to take that on myself, Think about that for one second. That judgment and that justice that God administers in the world, he's going to put that on himself. He's going to take 
our place. That's what the bow pointing upward means, right? This is warfare language. And God is saying that I'm going to take that arrow. I'm going to take that for you. And we know that that's true. This is what makes God great. He's good in how he administers justice. But what he's saying here is that I'm going to administer what you deserve to me and to myself, right? This is the coolest part of my sermon. Look at that. Bow pointed upward, right? We have that rainbow in the clouds that's a reminder that God is going to take what we deserve on himself. This is the gospel. It's the promise that we receive in Jesus. And we know that thousands of years later, he undoes everything that we see early on in Genesis from Genesis 3 up until now, right? We're exiled from the garden in Genesis 3. We're out of right relationship with God. We are um, we're not, uh, you know, accepted. We can't be in God's presence here. And here is Jesus leaving God's side and he's exiled for us. He's crucified outside of the city, right? He's sent away so that we can be brought in. He is the one who takes that spear in the side so that we do not have to. And he's the one who takes all upon himself all of that judgment that we deserve. And he undoes what we did in the garden. There's Adam and Eve in the garden who fail in their temptation. They do not trust God's will. They take their will into their own hands. And what do we have with Jesus on the Mount of Olives? He's in a garden and he says that your will be done and not mine. And what he's saying there is, I will take your judgment. I will take it for these people so that they can be brought in to right relationship with God. I'll be cast out so that they can be brought in. That's what the bow represents and that's what Jesus fulfills. And this is good news. So what does this mean for us though? Thousands of years later, right? These are, these are good ideas. These are good concepts. This is a really good story. And yet here we are in our modern culture in 2022, suburban Chicago, there's a pandemic going on, there is polarization politically, there's racial tensions, all of these big issues that we see popping up day after day, not to mention uh, war in Europe, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, and we have a lot of fear. It seems to be a lot of Genesis 3 language here, right? There's disorder, there's chaos, and we need our God of judgment here and of justice in the world. How do we do that? How do we live in our context understanding this message? Well, one thing that I want to reiterate is that we have to understand our part to play. That, that news about how God understands, he says in uh, chapter 8, that uh, I understand, this is before he makes the covenant, I understand that the intentions and, and the hearts of humans are evil from childhood on. Uh, but I'm still going to take on this judgment and judgment myself in the future. Um, he understands that this is part of our hearts. And if you, don't, if you think that's for them back in Genesis 6, uh, I'd say that you're mistaken because Jesus, in his ministry, starts to talk about murder. And he says, you've heard it said that murder uh, will keep you subject to judgment. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And yet he says, he compares it to anger. If you've ever been angry with someone, you've murdered someone in your heart. Uh, if you've ever called somebody a fool, you're subject to justice. If you've ever insulted anybody, you're subject to justice. God is equating all of those things with murder. We are all, in that sense, guilty of murder. We haven't acted on it, right? But it's in our hearts. And that's what God repeats over and over. Remember, he doesn't say that the actions of people are evil. It's that their hearts are evil. Their inclination is evil. And Noah is different. It does not say Noah is not evil, it says that he walked with God. He trusted God and he listened and obeyed God. He chose from the tree of life as opposed to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
That's why we get this hope in the story through him, and that's why Noah is chosen to continue good moving forward. But we need to understand that that's something that we have as well. We have that evil inclination in our hearts. It's difficult. Like I said, our culture does not like that news. They don't like the idea of judgment, that we're subject to judgment, or that we have a part to play in our hearts, that we, that we, we carry that with us day to day. We have that sin sickness. And this is difficult. We do anything that we can to avoid this, to deny it, to move away from it. We create personas. This one author I know, he calls it his imposter, right? This person that we build up to avoid the truth about ourselves. Uh, the performative person, right? We uh, idolize our career and that person we present there is far from the true self that we have not yet acknowledged. But if this is a story of reconciliation between God and his people, how does it matter to us if we don't acknowledge our part to play? We need reconciliation. Our culture needs to hear that and we as image bearers need to carry that out into the world. God can accept that dark part of ourselves. We know that because the arrow is pointed up or the bow is pointed upward. God accepts that on the cross. He takes all that darkness that we carry with us and he brings it on to himself. He can accept us for who we are and that dark stuff that we carry with us, those secrets or the parts of ourselves you'd rather not admit exist. They do, and God loves both parts of you, the light and the dark as it is, and he dies for you despite you even knowing that or not or acknowledging that or not or believing that or not. And that's really good news. Otherwise, we run the risk of telling lies and continuing to deceive ourselves and contributing to that darkness and the corruption that's in the world. This is an image from Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries. Super good. Uh, very similar to Don't Look Up or the Noah story in principle that uh, you know, there's this disaster that happens because of ignorance. And the head scientist in that, uh, in that show does a bunch of digging and research, and he pre prevents that corruption from spreading throughout the region. And he comes to trial uh, to talk about um, you know, what he's learned and to accuse the, the people who are responsible. And he says, it's them, who, these people who are responsible. Yeah, but ultimately it's the government because of the lies that they told. He says, when the truth offends, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it's even there. But it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. It's scary news, right? We know that we deceive ourselves and we lie, but... We need to understand that that debt has been paid. This is greater than just what the government can do. We understand true justice is not full. If somebody that you know is murdered and they're sent away to prison for life, is that complete? Do you get your person back? No, it's incomplete justice. We need that judge to administer it, and we need that truth that for what we've contributed, we're redeemed and loved. That debt has been paid. God loves us and accepts us and heals us and is willing to cut out that corruption in our heart and welcome us back into right relationship with him. It's hard to admit that side of ourselves. It's hard to admit our contributions, but it's true. And we as image bearers and people who follow Jesus need to follow that message and bring that into the world. And so we get with the bow being pointed upward, right? God has taken that on himself. The debt is paid, and that is good news. So I want to offer that to you as we are trying to walk more with God and trust in what it is that he has for us as we think of the crazy things going on in the world that we can have a part to play as image bearers who follow God's will, who restore right relationships in the world, who bring light to the darkness, who love and accept others. This is why this is so important. We can have compassion 
on others because we see our sinful self in them and they who might not have acknowledged it can receive our love and our forgiveness and our embrace because God has reconciled us to him and we're back in right relationship with him. That's what the story is about and that's what Noah teaches us and is very relevant for us today. So if you'll please pray with me. Father, I want to thank you for this story. I want to thank you for the good but hard truth that it gives us. I want to thank you that even though we have a part to play, that we also have a part to play in spreading that good news that you've paid that debt for us, that you have suffered for us, that the bow is pointed upward. And for every time we have lived out of the design and image that you've created us to live within, that we have the opportunity to return to you and run to you because you have fulfilled that promise that you died on the cross, you've brought us back into right relationship with you and that debt has been paid. But I pray that we carry this truth with us as we go on throughout our week, as we share our love of you with others and love others as you have loved us. It's in your name that we pray, amen.